Well, for those of you who have been coming along tonight, uh, or rather, of course you're coming. Uh, for those of you who've been coming along to church by the bridge here on a Saturday night over the over the past weeks, you'll have noticed that we've been going through Ephesians, and we're going through a, a series on Ephesians. And you might have been wondering, look, when that Bible was being read out, surely we've already done this bit before. Surely we've already read kind of, you know, chapter 1. We're all the way up to chapter 4. Why on earth are we going back? You know, as there's stuff in chapter 5 and 6 which we're just kind of bailing on and we're just going to go back on to repeat. Uh, we just hit the rewind button. Well, thankfully, no. Um, what we're doing is we're mixing it up a little bit. We're going to have two talks, two sermons, interspersed in the series which don't deal with individual passages as we kind of walk our way through the Scriptures, but rather look at one of the big themes that ties the book of Ephesians together. If you want to put it more technically, we're looking at a more kind of systematic theological look at the Bible. Now, if you're like me, as soon as you kind of hear the word theology, you kind of turn your, uh, sort of turn your toes up and you kind of feel scared and nervous and think, oh, this means that it's going to be dry and dull and all that kind of stuff. Not at all. Theology is absolutely vital to understanding how the Bible fits together and how exactly God works, what he's on about. Uh, C.S. Lewis, the famous author, described theology as like a map to a territory. When we're on the ground, we can't see all the things around us, but a map gives us a way of navigating around the landscape. And that's exactly what theology is. It gives us a map to kind of navigate around all the stuff that God has revealed in the scriptures. And that's what we're looking at tonight. But we're going to start in a maybe slightly unusual spot. And that's the year 1862. Now, 1862 was a difficult year for one man in particular, Abraham Lincoln. He was, of course, the President of the United States. And he was the President of the United States at probably the most difficult period in its history, the Civil War. As you'll know, the Americas had been split in two. The southern Confederate states had attempted to secede from the north. They had split. And they'd split over the issue of slavery. And under the leadership of the brilliant general, Robert E. Lee, they had been winning, over the past months, stunning victories against the Northern Union. They had taken major cities and were making major inroads into the north. And in fact, it would not be another year, 1863, until the tide would finally turn into the north's favour at the Battle of Gettysburg. Now, the United States President is compelled by the Constitution to make a report to Congress every year. And he's compelled under Article 2, Section 1. Let me read it to you, the Constitution. The President shall from time to time give to Congress information of the State of the Union and recommend to their consideration such measures as he shall judge necessary and expedient. And so it's little surprise that the unity of the nation was high on Lincoln's mind when he was giving the address to Congress. Now, there were some members of the Congress who decided that it would be better just to leave things be, to give the South what they wanted, to allow them to keep their slaves and allow them to separate the nation. They were gunning for disunity, a separate nation. And there were members of the Congress who were supportive of that, thought that was the easiest way. But Lincoln would have none of it. In his State of the Union address, 
He addressed precisely that issue, the unity of the nation. He said that the unity of the nation was paramount. He said that disunion was totally inadequate. He said that this very land, the very nature of the topography of America, demands union and abhors separation. He said that emancipation of the the slaves and with, with the struggle now would save the union forever. We are for the union, said Lincoln, and we know how to save the union. The union, the union, the union. It was Lincoln's obsession. And it's hardly an isolated concern, is it? It's hardly isolated to 1862. The union, not of the United States of America, but of the whole world, is of concern to all of us. Unity is a key issue. Because in our world, unity is something that seems to be in short supply. The world seems to be hopelessly divided. On the face of it, maybe we've got it all together. I mean, of course, we have this thing called the United Nations, which, of course, means that the world kind of all runs perfectly smoothly. But, of course, we know that's not true. There's still significant distrust between nations. You only need to remember the catastrophe in Burma earlier this year and the fact that they flatly refused to have Western aid come in to assist, to know that unity between nations is in many ways largely fictional. But there's a disunity in our world that goes more deep than just between us. There's a disunity between human beings and God. What's the answer for that? Well, as Christians, of course, we know what the answer for that is. We know that it's the Gospel. We know that it's the good news about Jesus, the Son of God, who has come to repair the divide between God and human beings. But the Bible expresses this truth even more mystically than that. You see, we know that unity is to be found through the Gospel, through Christ and what He has done. But so often the language it uses is even more intimate than that. The world is not just to be united through Christ. The world is to be united in Christ. Now what exactly does that mean, to be united in Christ? We use that word, that expression so blithely all the time. We sign off emails, yours in Christ. We talk about our relationships with one another as, oh, he's my brother in Christ. But I wonder if we always know exactly what that means. If we've ever plumbed the depths of what it means to not just be saved through Christ, but to be saved in Christ. What exactly does it mean? Well, I want to say tonight that for Paul, in his letter to the Ephesians, it means absolutely everything. That union with Christ is the key theme of this book. That if Ephesians were a cake, union with Christ would be the egg that binds it together. Let me read to you what I think is really the key verse in this entire book, the key verses. And we're going to do a little bit of Bible flicking tonight. Uh, Just three quick points, but we're going to be darting around a little bit just to see exactly where he's going with his logic. But come with me to chapter 1, verses 9 to 10. Chapter 1, verses 9 to 10. And he, that's God, made known to us the mystery of his will, 
according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ, to be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfilment. And here it is. What's the big point of creation? What's the big point that everything's heading towards? To bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. The English Standard Version puts it even more literally. Let me read it to you. As a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. This idea of union in Christ informs the whole letter to the Ephesians and if we don't get it, we'll miss so much of its depth. I think you might even say that Ephesians is the, Apostle's Paul, the Apostle Paul's state of the union address. And that's what we're going to turn to now in just three very quick points as we come to look through what this is about. So point one. First of all, God's purpose, as I said, is to unite all things in Christ. Now I said that this is going to be a two-part sort of series and Paul himself said that he wanted to unite all things in heaven and on earth. And I think those two themes are divisible. So tonight we'll be looking at uniting all things on earth and in a few weeks' time, at all things in heaven. Now, what exactly does that word mean, to unite all things in Christ? Well, the word only turns uh, up once else in the New Testament. It turns up in Romans 13, verse 9. And the general idea is to sum up, to complete, to bring under the control of, to bring under one head. To use an illustration, think about it a bit like a corporate takeover. Uh, You might have known, if you follow the business news, that earlier in this year, uh, Westpac wanted to take over St George Bank. Now, that merger failed, but if it had succeeded, St George would have been brought under one head. It would have been merged into St George. It's that kind of an idea. Here, I think, what it means is for for Jesus Christ to be the total sphere of influence in which everything occurs. And it's easy to see why might actually have that purpose for the world. Why God might want to bring everything under the power and control of Jesus Christ. Because as we said, this world is totally disunited from God. We've separated ourselves from Him. Look with me at chapter 2, verses 11 to 12. He's talking about the human condition, the human situation, and he says this, verse 11. Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who have called themselves the circumcision, that done in the body by the hands of men, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. You see the points he makes? Firstly, those people who were outside the initial family of God, Israel, the Jewish people, they were separated from those people. There was disunity and hatred amongst human beings. And not much has really changed. We need only to look at the newspapers and the news to see that there is massive disunity between us. But more importantly, it says that there is massive disunity between us and God. The language he uses is highly evocative. We are foreigners and strangers to God. I don't know if you've ever been in a foreign country where you don't speak one word of the language, where you don't know one person. 
where you may not even know exactly where you're going to be staying that night because your bus just pulled in that morning. I remember once wandering around, of all places, Budapest. I somehow found myself there on a backpacking holiday and wandering around and looking at street signs in this strange language which I couldn't pronounce and listening to people having intimate conversations in a language of which I knew not one word and looking at streets and buildings which people called their homes and their monuments. This was their life. And yet to me, I was totally alienated from it. I was totally separate. And that is how God says this world is to him. On our own devices, it's as if we're wandering around the streets of some foreign city, totally alienated from the life of God. But in fact, not just totally alienated, not just strangers, but whom, if we spoke the language, would be welcomely taken into their doors. No, it's more than that. We're not just strangers as a world. We're enemies. Look at chapter 2, verses 1 to 2. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live, of this world, and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who was at work in those who are disobedient. We're not just strangers in a strange land. No, we're members of an enemy country. We belong in a land, in a world that is declared its enmity towards God. We're not just holiday makers in a foreign land. We're residents of the axis of evil. There's massive disunity and God wants to restore it. Which brings my second point. Because for us, as Christians, there is great hope. Turn with me to chapter 1, verses 18 to 21. I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he, God, has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. You see, for us there is hope. Where the world is hopeless, by God's power we have been called to hope. You can see it there in verse 18. And it's by that same power that God sent his Son to die for our sin, to give us that hope and to raise him from the dead and seat him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. You can see that there in verse 20. See, now what's the significance of that? Why did God raise Christ from the dead up to the heavenly realms? What does it all that mean? You see it there in the very next verse. Far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. Jesus has been raised from the dead to the heavenly realms. Now I think we sometimes get quite confused about exactly that means for Jesus to be in the heavenly realms. Does it mean that if I were an astronaut I might be able to go up far enough and discover him? Does it mean that the Hubble telescope 
might one day actually concentrate on a particular part of the sky and see a man floating around in space. Does it mean that God has raised him up to another dimension of existence? Well, unfortunately the Bible just doesn't go into that kind of detail. We don't know. But what it definitely means is clear. That by Jesus being raised into the heavenly realms, it means that Jesus has been raised above all the authorities and powers that would deny God's authority and power. It means that Jesus has been raised above all evil. He has conquered sin and has shown himself to have conquered sin by the fact that he has conquered its effect, death. He has been raised from death to life and so is above all powers and authorities, including that of sin, that would oppose God. Jesus has been raised to the heavenly realms. That is our hope. But my third point is this. But this is the amazing thing. That where this world has been rejecting God in total disunity, separating ourselves from Him, not as some foreigner, some holiday maker, but as a member of an enemy state, where our hope has come because God has sent His Son Jesus to conquer that, to raise from dead above all the powers of sin. We find our hope in the fact that somehow we have been raised with Him. In chapter 2, verse 6, it started off, as we read out there in chapter 1 to 2, to describing the state we were in, that we were members of this axis of evil, going against God all the time. At one time, verse 3, we lived this way, craving our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. In verse 4, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were transgressions. It's by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressing his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Just as Jesus has been raised to the heavenly places chapter 1 verse 20 we're there with him. We have been raised with him to the heavenly places. Now quite obviously we're not floating around in space. Quite obviously, we've not been packed into Jesus' body. We're not physically with God in Christ in the heavenly places. That's not what it means. It's a metaphor. What it means is this. Just as Jesus has been raised above all the authority of sin, he has conquered it. So have we. It's not that we don't sin. It's not that we don't do the wrong thing. It's that when God looks at Jesus or rather when God looks at us he sees Jesus he so closely identifies the two of us when we put our trust in him that it is as if we are he but despite all my sin all my rejection of him when I put my trust in what Jesus has done for us on the cross God overlooks that 
and sees him. When Christ died, it is as if I died. When Christ, when Christ was raised from the dead, it is as if I was raised from the dead. When Christ was raised to the right hand of God to sit in the heavenly realms, conquering all of sin, it is as if I am there right up there with you. God knows I sin. God knows you do the same. But he overlooks it. Because when he looks at me, he sees Christ. It's like that film Twins. You see that with Danny DeVito and Arnold Schwarzenegger? You know, the, 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 the byline was, you'll never tell them apart. Well, in this case, it really is a bit like that. Except when God looks at Danny DeVito, it's not as if he needs to do this pretend. He actually sees Christ. That's what it means to be in Christ. And that's why when in that passage it was read out, say from verse 3 onwards, that we have every blessing in Christ. It's not just a turn of phrase. It's actually saying that we have every blessing that Christ has. If we are in Christ, then we have every blessing that he has. We have peace with God because Christ is at peace with God. And so on and so forth. Now that's all the dense theological stuff. What exactly does that mean for us? Well, let me close with two things for us to think about. Firstly, what it means is this. Because we are in Christ, we are reconciled to God. But because we are reconciled to God, we are reconciled to each other. You can see it there in chapter 2, verse 15. His purpose, God's, was to create in himself one new man out of the two, thus making peace. And in this body, in this one body, to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. We have unity. Church unity is a bit of a hot topic. We're always on about achieving church unity. And yet it's fascinating, isn't it? When you look at the language of the Bible, it never actually urges Christians to achieve unity. What does it tell you to keep? To do, rather? Well, I've given it away. It tells you to keep the unity. Ephesians 4.3 says, keep the unity that you have. And why is that? Well, it's because we're already united. Now, when you think about that, that's actually a scary thought. You are united with other Christians, whether you like it or not. Now, in some ways, we feel that as a wonderful thing. It is a fabulous thing to know that across all boundaries of race, of class, of gender, of economic status, of intelligence of education, no matter where you are in the world, you are one in Christ with other people who are one in Christ. That we have a family that transcends borders, united nations, in a unity that takes place not in the minds of politicians, but in the very throne room of God. That is an enormously encouraging thing for us. And I urge you to think about that when thinking about overseas missions when thinking about the way we treat our Christian brothers and sisters overseas. But it also means that we must strive to keep that unity that we already have. Because you're united with people whom you disagree with. On the secondary issues that so often divide us, well, you're united with those people. 
If they believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and came to die for their sins, then you are their brother or sister. Even if you don't like what they think about baptism or what they think about, well, I'm sure you can come up with any number of things. Now, that doesn't mean that we should never discuss these things. By no means. It's precisely because we are united with them that we must strive to keep unity, talk through these issues, resolve conflicts where we can, so that we can get on with the main message of the Bible. Loving God, loving Christ and spreading that love to the world. But it also means, in some ways even worse, that you're united with people, not only with whom you disagree, but with whom you actively dislike. Think of Christians who get on your nerves. I may be one of them. You may be sitting next to one by accident and are wondering how you can scurry away to kind of get a cup of coffee without them noticing. Well, I'm afraid it's a small church. You probably had a lot. Now, that may not be tonight. It may be elsewhere. But it's a challenge, isn't it? If I'm in Christ, that when God looks at me, he sees his son. And when he looks at that person, who I can't stand, unfortunately he sees his son as well. I say unfortunately sarcastically. Doesn't that mean something? That we must strive to keep the unity upon which we're based? But secondly, not only does it strive to keep the unity which God has won for us, but also it means that we are united in the cause that God himself is committed to. Because the purpose of God, as expressed here in Ephesians 1 verses 9 to 10, is to see all the world united in him. It's to see people who are not united with Christ, who are still strangers to him, united in him. That's the challenge that our church faces as we strive to reach just one suburb of God's will, your ability, to see people one for Christ. Because we have an amazing piece of news. So many people in our world are terrified by what's to come. They don't know what life is going to be like. They don't know whether there's a God or whether he'll judge them or what that judgment will be like. They don't know if there's life after death. And yet because of what Christ has done, we know what will become of us because in a profound way, it has already happened. Will I be judged by God? Do I deserve it? Yes. How do I know? Because it's already happened at Calvary. I was judged on the cross. What will be the outcome of that? Will I survive? Well, yes, I will. Because yes, I did. I was raised with Christ when he was resurrected. Will I have hope? Well, yes, I will. Because I did. And Christ was raised to the heavenly realms above all powers and authorities. We have an amazing comfort in the news that we are united with Christ. And God looks at us and sees his son. And that is a message that a worried world desperately needs to be.